Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Open your Bibles, your iPhones, your eyelids. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to cover the rest of the chapter in our time together today. Wasn't those cookies nice from our youth department? I'll just say thank you to them for coming early. I'm glad that you're here. We basically pick a book of the Bible, start walking through it. We're walking through Matthew for the next 10 years. Basically how it's going. Um, Let's pray, shall we? Father, I just thank you for this community of people, and I thank you for the truth of the scriptures, and I thank you for the beauty of who you are. And I ask that today that you would speak to us in a real deep way this morning, and I ask that you would challenge us and that you would push us. I ask you to challenge us in the real deep parts of our hearts this morning. But I also ask that you would push us in our mind. And I'm going to ask for your help in in all of that. And all of God's people, the congregation that is, the community, said amen. And again. And again. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I get so overwhelmed that at least for a brief period of time, life becomes almost more than I can bear with. Are you tracking with me? You know, perhaps I'm dealing with one, two, three, or 15 different stressors at work, and then, yes, actually, we do have stressors in the pastoral ministry. I do work more than two hours a week, just for clarification. But you have stressors in work and then something happens in my personal life and maybe it's the having to attend to the needs of a child who's sick or maybe it's just dealing with cancer as we have in our family or it's a toothache or it involves an elderly parent because you name it, it catches us from behind, does it not? And at times, something that is happening at home can affect my ability to do uh, what I can at my job. What about you? Do, you? do you guys, or am I the only one who does this? At other times, stressful situations uh, at work can ruin my weekend. It can even ruin an evening with my wife or my family, or it could actually ruin a vacation when you're overseas in Moscow. Actually, it's not a vacation, it's work, but stress goes on here. And I trust that you can relate with me at this point, or is it just me? You know, it's easy for us to talk about boundaries, and it can be harder to actually divorce ourselves mentally and emotionally from what's going on at work or at home. And when there are stressors pressing us from several sides, it's easy to feel like we're standing at a beach. We love standing at a beach. But have you ever been standing at a beach and looking hopelessly as a wave is about to come crashing down on you and smash you back into the sand? Because I think if it were to be honest, we've all been there, and perhaps you're even there this morning. I think the disciples were there in our scripture passage this morning, and that's why I actually think it relates very easy with us. We've learned a lot about Jesus over the last little while. Past few months, we saw that the Jewish people waited hundreds of years for their king. Then at long last, Jesus arrives, he shows up on the scene, and Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was very different than what's going on in this world. And we we saw that Jesus had power over nature when he calmed the raging sea with just a word. We learned that, that Jesus had complete power over evil spirits, and that Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sin. 
Matthew records a number of parables in chapter 13. Then in chapter 14, he begins with the report of Herod. Now again, it's not Herod the Great who died just after Jesus was born, but it was one of his sons. And that Herod had John the Baptist beheaded in prison. And this now becomes, as you read through the book of Matthew, it now becomes a significant sign of the growing opposition towards not just John and his followers, but also Jesus. Verse 13 tells us that when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew to a deserted place by himself. As it appears that either the disciples were with them or they were actually close by. They were all trying to be alone. Why? Well, they're in mourning. Interesting, if you've ever lost somebody dear, what is the first thing we do? We withdraw, don't we? We just withdraw from people. That's just what it is. John the Baptist was executed by Herod. Herod was hosting this birthday banquet, if you remember from last week. He was feeding those who had no lack of food. He, he decides to reward his stepdaughter for her inappropriate dancing by showing off it to his guests. Says to her, makes a crazy oath, says you can have anything that you want. So at the urging of her mother, she asks for John's head on a platter. Herod goes through with this grisly execution and there isn't a bit of compassion in anyone in that story when we read it. But this guy, John, is not only Jesus' cousin, he's also Jesus' predecessor as well. He had even baptized Jesus, if you remember, and, and a number of Jesus' disciples once were disciples of John. So to say that they are overwhelmed by grief is an understatement. Jesus is bummed here. The disciples are bummed, and they're trying to get away for a bit. And I think we can understand and relate that. They need some time off. Things are getting too overwhelming. Do you know of which I speak? They can't handle much more. And so they withdraw. It's crazy, though, because the news of Jesus continues to spread. More and more people wanted to hear him. More and more people want to see him. But the crowds are following Jesus and his disciples, and he's tired. He's, he's done physically. He's done emotionally. He needed some time alone and some solitude as a crowd is pressing. And so what does scripture says? It gets in a boat, and he sails to a distant shore, probably northeast on the Sea of Galilee. Now remember, the Sea of Galilee is not this big sea. It's a lake. It's about seven miles wide and 14 miles long. You can see a lot what's going on there. So there's this thundering herd of people, and they see him get in the boat, and they're racing around the lake, and they want to meet him on the other side, wherever they are. And what are they carrying with them? They're carrying all their own horrible, burdening needs. And he gets to the other side of the lake, and there they are waiting for him. And it actually sets up a, a potential tension, if you want to think about it. it. Scripture says, when he saw the crowd. When he saw the crowd. You know, I remember I had to get glasses because I had a vision test and I failed miserably. And I, I think I need to do the same. Have you ever, you know, tried to look at the fine print? Right? Now, again, if you're over 50, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And... Uh, Go off to the eye doctor. Of course, I get fitted for the glasses after, you know, he says you've failed your vision test. And now you put the glasses on and I can actually see bricks and I can actually see leaves. And it's beautiful. I can see pins at the end of a bowling alley. And I can actually see words on a page and I don't have to, you know, make them bigger on my iPad right, or on my phone. Although my kids still laugh at the print sizes on my phone. It's a whole new world when you get the glasses. 
I want to present to you something this morning as we walk through the book of Matthew. I want to present to you that the most pressing challenge in the Christian life is vision correction. Vision correction. See, you and I, if we were in this predicament, would, under, would probably understand if we had many different reactions. You know, Jesus could have blown his top or he could have breathed this heavy sigh like, oh, people, come on. He could have gotten back in the boat, sailed to the other side of the lake. Right? Oh, there they are. Forget that. Let's get out of here. He could have done that, but he doesn't. What does it say? Scripture says that when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. He has this ability to lay aside his own needs and, and to offer compassion to others. And, and that's one of the things that sets Jesus apart. And there, there are two things we need to see here. And one is that compassion is a characteristic of God. And it requires getting my eyes off myself and seeing the needs of others. Paul writes in Philippians, he says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, getting the eyes off ourself and looking to others. And it's interesting because when you look through scripture, we see that compassion is normal for God, but it is abnormal for humans. Why? Because our nature wants to focus on ourselves. And secondly, the lessons about to be taught about God's provision are being taught when we look in the context, it's the context of compassion. It's very easy for us to think about God's provision very selfishly, is it not? You know, we think about, well, you know, we ask, what can God do for me? You know, my health, my wealth, my mansion, my jet, it all can go from there. But the context of the scripture is seeing the real need and the meeting of that need. And the, the problem was that the disciples had limited vision. And they needed some correction. You know, the, the healing that was going on probably stretched on for hours until the sun was setting. You know, after a day of healing and a day of counseling and teaching and loving, I think the disciples were probably fed up up to here. You know, they're, they're, they were done. They're grief-stricken, they're in mourning, but now they're still giving and they're tired and they're stressed. And the crowds keep surging and growing as it, it appears. And by the time evening comes, it says that there are about 500 men plus women and children. And so where are they? They're in this crazy, isolated, remote location in the middle of nowhere. And the more Jesus heals, the more people come. And it goes on and on. And, you know, would you be a bit stressed at this point because I'd be a little bit irritable just to be honest and I would find it personally to be uh, compassionate as the day would go on maybe you'd be freaking out I'd be probably biting my nails and going like are you guys done yet let's get out of here and because why I'm more focused on myself now, the more practically-minded disciples saw the problem from the horizon, and so they came up with a plan full of common sense, right? They felt, that, uh, they felt the pressure. They noticed that the sun was going down, that it was getting late, that they were in a bad location. It was a remote place. There was no 24-hour McDavid drive through There was nothing happening that way. And when it got dark, it was going to get really, really dark. And so the solutions for the disciples was to end the service and dismiss the crowds before they started to need food. Because the disciples, they wanted to relieve themselves of the responsibility for this group and send them the, away. 
Their compassion was limited by their resources. And the resources were actually quite pitiful, if you want to go by there. These were typical guys. They were out on the road trip and somebody forgot to bring a cooler. That's what was going on here. They came up with this good plan as they could. As long as they left God out of the picture, things were going to work. Hey, Jesus, let's get rid of them. And they come to their breaking point, and they actually come up, and it's getting dark, and people hung, are hungry. There is no food. Uh, I think they're in a bit of a panic. When you think about it, fifteen to 20,000 people approximately, they come to Jesus, and they desperately say to him, this is a remote place. Hey, Jesus, we're in the middle of nowhere, and it's getting extremely late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And then Jesus turns around and he shocks them with what he says. He says, there's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. I love that. It's, it's almost like a slap in the face. What are you talking about? You do it. And there could be no doubt that these crowds with unmet needs tend to overwhelm them and us. If you think about it and you put it in a different context, if it was only six people following Jesus when it came time to eat, it was probably a little bit more manageable. Bit of an annoyance, oh, we have to look after it, perhaps, but definitely manageable. As I said earlier, the Bible says it was 5,000 men, not to mention the women and children. Again, so it could have been somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people there. That's an arena-sized crowd of grumbling tummies. And that's a little too much to handle. So the disciples are pleading with Jesus to tell the crowds to hit the road, get your own food. Is that a practical enough solution? So think about it. Think about it in our world. How many times are you tempted to tell the crowds of desperate people that you see on the streets or coming to the doors of the church or your car to go away and buy food for yourself? How many times are you and I tempted to do this? How often do we do this? See, the disciples were very much limited in their vision, right? So Jesus says, you know, you guys do it. And what do they say? They say, well, we have nothing. Well, except uh, the five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Which got me thinking. How many times have you felt God's call in your life? God's compassion come into your heart to reach out through you to the lost, to the hurting, to the sick, to the marginalized. But as soon as that compassion starts flooding in, you, you look into your pockets or you look at your watch or your phone and you say, you know, I don't have the resources nor the time to do anything about this. And then the moment passes and the light turns green, right? And that's your chance to escape. And you push the gas pedal, you turn up the radio and you try to succeed at forgetting about what God has called you to do. You can say amen or ouch at any point in time as we go through this time. See, because it's too easy to send the needy away and to try to pretend that they don't exist. And it's so easy to look at what we've got and say, well, it's not enough, right? Or we look and we say, let's let somebody else help them. When the disciples say this to Jesus, Jesus' reply is, you give them something to eat. 
You take care of them. You put your compassion into action. And it seems a little bit cruel or maybe unfair, but when you, again, look at the context. Who are the disciples? They were a bunch of Jewish young men. They knew the scriptures. They knew the stories. It was passed down every Passover. They knew it was about the 40 years of the uh, children of Israel wandering in the desert and how God provided food for the masses every day. They knew how God kept millions of people alive in the wilderness. And they, they had just watched Jesus. Don't forget, they just finished watching Jesus heal person after person all afternoon on top of what they have already witnessed for months that they have spent with them. And so Jesus was asking them to open their eyes to a full reality, but they just couldn't. Jesus, we don't have anything. Oh, we got five loaves and two fish. That's about it. And so their vision is actually limited to, in, in two ways. It was limited to the physical and to the present. You know, how many times have you tried to plan to feed hungry people? Maybe you've done a, a wedding or some sort of event or a party, and you see this long line of hungry mouths come in, and there's, you look at your table, and there's a relatively small amount of food, and you get a little nervous. That's me. I, I love to cook. When we have people over, I always inevitably buy way too much. Why? I'm afraid that people are going to go hungry. But Jesus doesn't leave us alone in this seemingly overwhelming endeavor. Now, some vision correction is about to take place here. Jesus doesn't yell and he doesn't scold. It's crazy. He actually turns to the disciples and he invites them to be a part of the miracle. Jesus says, bring what you got to me. Just, just, just bring it here. And then he orders the crowds to sit down. So you got to imagine this. Everybody sit, everybody, everybody sit. And you can see it getting passed down. Took the five loaves of bread. He took the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he blessed them. And he broke the loaves apart and he gave it to his disciples. And then the disciples gave it to the crowds. Most Bibles, if you're holding your Bible, it, it has a heading and the story for the story, and it should read something along the lines that Jesus feeds the 5,000. And actually, Jesus gives food only to the disciples. And it's the disciples who feed the others. Jesus takes this offering of fish and chips, so to speak, not because he needs it, but because he wants to involve his disciples in the ministry. And he calls the people to sit down and the disciples take those loaves that Jesus broke and they turn around and they start handing it out. And, you know, it's clearly a miracle of Jesus that feeds the multitudes, without question. I don't argue that at all. But it doesn't reduce the call to discipleship uh, to that of a call of being passive. What we see is that our call, much like the disciples, is to active ministry. That we are called as disciples to meet the human need. And so Jesus feeds the 12 and the 12 feed the 5,000 plus. When we come to the Bible, when we come to the scriptures, when we come to church, think of it this way, when we put our tithes and offerings in the joy basket, when we trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, for our joy, for our peace, when we come to the communion table and we eat the bread, which is 
his broken body. We drink the juice, which is blood poured out for our salvation, for the salvation of the world. When we do these things, and we do it weekly, hopefully, what happens? We're fed. We're fed. That's what it means to be spiritually fed. We are given a spiritual sustenance. We are filled with the Holy Spirit when we go and we pray and we worship and we open ourselves up to God. And then we are sent from here, are you not? You're sent with a blessing to do what? To feed the world. And in feeding the world, when we do that, when we're obedient and we live out our faith, we are also fed because faith without action is dead. Faith in action is alive and it's exciting and it's fulfilling and it's life-changing. Now notice how Jesus takes the bread and blesses it. it was this the first, first supper? You know, was this the first communion, so to speak? It was interesting. There's an interesting parallel. There's no indication of when the food began to multiply. We, we can't really tell when that happened, but Jesus' involvement of the, the disciples was very instructive. He wanted them to see God at work. He wanted them to participate with him in this miracle. They were with him in this miracle. This is almost a brief preview of the great commission of go out into the world for they are now there to meet the needs of the people. And they may not have seen the deeper meaning at this time, but as the disciples look back to the event, they would catch it. Especially as Jesus instructed Peter and others to feed his sheep post-resurrection. It's interesting, the, the, the whole ministry is centered on feeding people. That's the picture that we read here in this passage. It's the physical food. And, uh, and it, this is actually part of pastoral compassion and care when you look at it this way. You know, part of our job in, in church ministry is to meet the physical needs of people. And we, we do that often. But there's also the spiritual food, the, the, the word of God. People don't have it in and of themselves to have these needs met. They, they will receive it first from Jesus and then Jesus will then give it to the people and the people then give it to others. And this is the way that ministry works, that the Lord has chosen to give it to some so that in, they in mind will give it to others. Paul says, it's interesting when he writes, he says, that which I receive, I deliver to you. So he received it from God and he now delivers it to others. There's this pattern that when we spend time with God and we get built up and we get encouraged, then he, we receive from God and now I take that and I give to others. It's, our faith is not just a storehouse where we just keep it to ourselves. It's no instant, accident that Matthew tells us that, that we'll meet Jesus in reaching out to the least of our brothers, our sisters, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned. And then for those of us who would rather sit back in our lazy boy chairs, this passage of scripture can actually be quite uncomfortable. Because in the first place, it actually challenges our own heartlessness and our own failure to give ourselves to others, even when it hurts. That's an amen or ouch. Even when it hurts, as believers, we are to give ourselves 
to others. And this event gives us a vision of compassion that we as followers of Christ are to call to embrace and call to embody. And it's also a challenge to us to turn away from the worldly quest for power and for plenty and to renounce any callous disregard for the suffering of others. Technically, we are Jesus with skin on. And in spite of what seems like nothing in, in the face of such overwhelming needs, we're told that the scripture goes on and says, everybody ate until they were full. Ministry done within the will of God is going to be fruitful. Ministry done within the will of God will succeed. All we have to do is trust Jesus and do what he calls us to do. What has Christ called you to do? That is an awesome responsibility, is it not? That God has entrusted you and me to be the body of Christ, to be the hands and feet through which God's work is done in this needy world. Now the context of the miracle is important. Again, you look at the the scriptures, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in Jewish territory. It was a sign to to Israel that the Messiah was able to feed all the people even when there was no food to be had. The fact that there were 12 baskets uh, left over indicates that Jesus meets the needs of the the 12 tribes of Israel. You can read into that or not, that's up to debate, but that makes sense for me. As we'll see when we continue to walk, he then moves into Gentile territory. But finally, it's a challenge for us to to offer what are our meager resources that we have? What do you have to offer God? What's your five loaves and two fish? What's your time? What's your expertise? What's your finances? What's your friendship, your creativity, your compassion? What's it going to take for Jesus to take those things, to break them and bless them and give them back to us so that we can give it back to those in need? And when we do this, there's always, see, and I think we forget such an important part of this passage is that there's always leftovers. And when are the leftovers the best? The next day. (laughs) Are they not? So God works in us, he works through us, and we give him our meager offerings. He takes it, he breaks it, he blesses it, we pass it out, and there's still more. There's still more. And there's always plenty of food left over for us. We never go wanting. And yet, if anybody reads the, uh, says that following Jesus is easy, they obviously haven't read the Gospels. You know, we human beings are often caught in a struggle to overcome our compassion fatigue. You get tired of it. Yeah? You, you're watching TV and the, the, the hunger... Hungry kids come up on, and you just, or the dogs, you know, feed my dog. No, and we go. You just get tired of it. We, we actually get desensitized. And we get overwhelmed when we see these things because the stuff in our own life is much more bigger and much more greater. And, and uh, we look at our resources and we go, I don't have any resources to do anything. And let me just say this, people, that's normal. That's normal. See, our lives can be lived blind to God's presence. And therefore, what happens is sometimes we just get so self-focused, we become full of fear. 
as opposed to being full of confidence of God's sovereign presence and therefore full of his peace and full of his joy. Where's your vision at this morning? God is constantly calling us to look for him, to see him, to trust him, especially in the times of darkness and to do so in the context of compassion and ministry and surrounded by need, we have to be aware as believers that we serve a dying and dark world. And in doing so, we trust God to pour out his compassion through us as channels of his grace. Do you realize that you are a channel of God's grace to the people that you cross path with every day? Isn't that amazing? You can make the difference in the life of anybody just by recognizing that you're a channel of his grace. Now it's crazy because the disciples were a part of this miracle and yet the Bible says that they didn't fully understand it. Again, this, this story is covered by the Gospels and Mark is an interesting take on it. And it says that their hearts were hard or stubborn. So here, here they are. They're trying to get rid of the people. They're seeing miracles done all day. They participate in the miracle. They can't believe what's going on, but their hearts are still hard and stubborn. Now, again, they know that Jesus is special, but they didn't realize that he was the Messiah per se, that he was God in, in human body. They, they, they weren't seeing clearly with their kingdom eyes. They were still kind of blinded here. And so Jesus was about to do another miracle. And this time the disciples would finally realize who Jesus really was. He had something new to teach these guys. So the scripture says that he sent the, the crowd away and he sent the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. Now, again, remember, we're talking a big lake. So he sends his friends. This is great. This is beautiful. Jesus says, okay, boys, get in the boat. You know, okay, Jesus, yeah, we'll do whatever you do. They go get him in the boat. And the storm is coming. So here you have Jesus putting the boys in a boat and pushing them out into the lake, into a storm. Is the windstorm a surprise to Jesus? No. Of course it wasn't. He sent them into a storm for a reason. He wants to test their faith. He wants to teach them something about himself that they don't really know yet. And so this story is told in the books of Mark and John as well as in Matthew. And John tells us that the boat was about three miles out uh, from the shore by this time. And Mark says that Jesus could see the disciples from where he sat praying on the mountainside. So we know that Jesus is far away. That's basically what it's saying. And uh, uh, the disciples are having a hard time rowing because there's this strong wind blowing against them. So they're having a difficult time. And since they have taken this boat, there's, there's just uh, only one way for Jesus to cross the lake. And so what does he do? He actually walks on water. And here's another example in the scriptures of Jesus having power over nature. Somehow, can't explain it, the water held him up. The water treated Jesus differently than he treated the disciples. The disciples are struggling just to row across the lake, but Jesus is walking on top of the waves. Do you remember what the disciples said back in Matthew 8 when Jesus calmed the storm? They actually question, so what kind of guy, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So it's not the first time that he's messing with them with water. And so the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, or what they think could be Jesus or a ghost, but they're sure it's a ghost, which is interesting and gives a whole lot of different theological dimensions here. The fact of the matter is they look out, they're scared spitless. That's what's going on. So Jesus calls up to them and says, Hey, cheer up, hey guys, don't, don't, don't be afraid. 
So here they are, seeing stuff. They're struggling. Again, it's still more stress, is it not? And Jesus tries to comfort them. And how does he do that? He says it's in a very interesting way that you and I do all the time. Don't worry, it's me. If you're a parent of a young baby and the baby's you know, maybe has a, a, a night tremor or some nightmare of some sort, you, no, no, it's me, it's me. Mommy's here, daddy's here, right? Hey, it's me. This is what Jesus is doing. And he comforts them. He reassures them. Don't, don't, hey guys, don't, don't, don't be afraid, it's me, it's me. When we look through the scripture, we see that Jesus states that I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And he tells us that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Notice what did not happen. You know, Jesus wasn't walking across the water and saying, hey, cheer up, lads, because it's all going to be smooth sailing. Doesn't walk out there and says, you know, your troubles will melt like lemon drops way above the chimney tops. It's okay, I'm here. What does he say? He says, it's me. It's me. It's the kind of greeting that we say to people that we love, that you know intimately, who knows you, who loves you. It's a, reinsur- it's a reassurance that it's him. Jesus, the Lord of the land and sea, and he has come to us and is with us. And because he is with us, we shouldn't fear no matter what's happening around us or in us. That's what we take away from this passage. But as soon as they heard Jesus' voice, Peter speaks back. I love Peter. He's a unique guy. Boldest of all the disciples. He said things other people thought. You know, he was the type of person who did things other people wouldn't even have the nerve to do. Hey, yeah, you want to know what it feels like to walk in water? (laughs) Peter didn't. He was completely drawn to Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus with his whole heart. But before he stepped out, Peter said, Lord, is it? You know, Jesus said, don't worry, it's me. Uh, is it you? Uh, I think he just said it me. Well, if it is, Jesus, if it is, tell me to come on to water or come to you on the water. So here's Peter. He's desperately wanting to believe that Jesus is the son of God, but he's looking for proof. And he's asking Jesus to suspend him on the waves so that he could know for sure that Jesus is God. And Jesus doesn't get angry at Peter for asking this. You notice that there's no interesting dialogue. Are you sure you want to do this, Peter? No, 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 no. He just said, come. And so without question, with a mixture of fear and faith, Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water towards Jesus. This guy, it wasn't like, oh, look at me. Look what I can do. No, I'm, he's terrified. So he takes that first step. And you have to ask the question, why did Jesus invite Peter to come out and none of the other disciples? Hey, everybody come out. Hey, (laughs) into the pool, you know. The scripture says it's because Peter asked. That's a deep theological answer. Peter's the only disciple who asked to come to Jesus. And yet, you know, we look at this passage and over the history, Peter gets a bad rap because he's got the lack of faith. Well, the fact is he had more faith than anybody else in the boat. He got out of the boat and knowing Peter, it's really no surprise that he wanted to walk out to Jesus. The other disciples may have wanted to walk out to Jesus, but none of them dared to ask. 
They didn't know what to do. Peter asked to come to Jesus. Jesus waited for him, you know, yeah, sure, come. And Peter obeys. So who are you in the story? Are you more like Peter? Are you ready to ask God to use you? Or are you more like the disciples who sit in the boat to see what will happen with Peter? They're placing bets. He's going to go under. <laughs> I raise you five fish and, you know. So the wind's blowing. He steps out of the boat. And, and, and again, the context is, is that they're not in danger of capsizing. This is not a storm where the boat's going to go under. It's just a windy day. Do you understand that? And so the context of here is that it appears that the boat is in no danger of capsizing, but it, it's still pretty blustery out there. And Peter has enough faith to step out of the dry, sturdy boat in the dark. If you read the context, we, we see it's dark. And as the wind is whipping up in the waves, and, and he steps out. And at first, Peter's eyes are fixed on Jesus. And he didn't have to worry about the wind or the waves because he had the faith that Jesus wouldn't let him sink. He is focused. He is driven. But as the wind keeps blowing and as the water hits him in the face and the waves keep bouncing up and down, Peter sees the turmoil around him and he gets frightened because this is not normal. And he begins to sink. And as he begins to sink, he begins to cry out. And he says, Jesus, save me. Or Lord, save me. And Jesus didn't say, keep on going, Peter. Or Jesus didn't stand back and swim, Peter, swim. You know, you're the one. Or, or the best one, I, you know, I try to put it in, in parental terms. You're the one who decided to get out of the boat. You know, you know of which I speak, right? You decided to do that. You are the one who's frightened. You got yourself in this mess. Now you get yourself out of it, Peter. We don't see Jesus doing that at all. He simply stretched out his arm and he gave him his hand and he rescued him. And Jesus stretches out his arm. He grabs Peter. He saves him. And immediately... He looks at him and says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Did anything about Jesus change that caused Peter to sink? No. What changed? The only thing that changed is that Peter took his eyes off Jesus. Peter was overwhelmed by the things that were more powerful than he was. Sound familiar in our own personal lives? But Peter should have just simply remembered that nothing is more powerful than Jesus. And while he focused on Jesus, the things around him were not a threat to him, even though they presumed to be threatening. And when Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, he isn't telling Peter that he sunk because he didn't have enough faith. After all, we're supposed to have more faith so that we can walk on water like Peter. I know. What did he say? said, why did you doubt me? So when Peter saw the waves, the text doesn't say that he doubted, interesting enough. It says that he was frightened. And Jesus doesn't say, why were you frightened? He talks about this doubt. Doubt is something that's more subtle and it's much more de deeper. And remember, remember people, this is, was not Jesus' idea for Peter to get out of the boat and walk on water. It was Peter's. And so when Jesus said, come, and Peter steps out, Jesus says, why do you doubt? Because if Peter would have simply believed Jesus' word, then he would have been safe. 
So when Peter looks at the wind and the waves, he begins to doubt if Jesus is more powerful than the storm that surrounds him. And yet, you know, it's interesting what the Bible says about doubt, because there's a beautiful word picture found in James where it says, people who doubt are like the waves of the sea. The wind blows and tosses them around. And that's a very interesting word picture, because Peter doubt, Peter's doubt literally caused him to be tossed in the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. And when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, he told them to be brave. He says, don't be afraid, right? But Peter had this mixture of faith and fear, and I think that describes you and me most of the time. You and I may start out with some faith. We might begin to do something that we know that God wants us to do, like being nice to that person that nobody likes at the office, right? Or we might have faith that gives us peace in a difficult time, like when maybe a family member is sick. But when we take our eyes off Jesus, we, we look at the scary situation around us. And when we do that, and that becomes our focus, we doubt whether God actually has the power over that situation or, or whether or not he cares enough to even help us. And when that doubt comes into our lives, we may even stop doing what God wants us to do, or we may be so overwhelmed with fear that we're, we're paralyzed. And you know the kind of fear I'm talking about. The kind of fear that we have when we go into a situation is like there's this whirlwind in the pit of our stomach. But here's the truth. Lots of situations are too big or too scary for us to handle, people. Welcome to the real world. But nothing is too big for Jesus. Nothing is too big. So don't focus on the situation that you're in. Focus on the one who has the power over every situation. Do you hear me on that? What a blessing that we have. The creator of this universe, the, who has the power over all things. The creator of this universe, according to scripture, is crazy about you. And he wants to do what's best for you. And he is able to do what's best for you. And focusing on that truth should give you peace. The truth that should give you the confidence to step out of your boat and do what he wants you to do without any fear. Just keep your eyes on him. No, no one's faith is perfect. And if you do stumble, and if you ever doubt like Peter did, guess what? Talk to Jesus about it. That's what he did. Jesus never changed. He just reached out and he grabbed Peter's hand and he pulled him to safety. And the beauty of it is that he's that close to you and I, that he will help us when we reach out, when we call out, when we say, Lord, save us. And something awesome happened after Peter and Jesus got into the boat. When they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. They finally understood who Jesus was. They've already seen, again, remember, they've been traveling with him for months. They've already seen the miracles. But when Peter and the other disciples saw that Jesus could use Peter to walk on water, somehow, somewhere, their lives are now changed. And they all knew Peter, and some had known him all their lives, right? Because he was just this plain, clumsy, outspoken fisherman. But when he trusted in Jesus, he did something miraculous. He walked on top of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus transformed him. And surely Jesus now is the Son of God, and they recognize it. That teaching time, the light went on for them, and it was beautiful. Beautiful. 
So how does this apply to you today? You know, we can look at it and say, well, your friends and family know you, right? Your friends, your family, especially your family, they know your faults, they know the mistakes that you make. As a matter of fact, they they know who you really are. But when you ask God to use you, when you step out in faith, when you keep your focus on Jesus, hear me very carefully. When you do those things, he will do amazing things through you. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that, isn't that our desire? Graduation's upcoming and all the grad classes are going to hear somebody get up behind a podium and say, oh, you guys are here to change the world. Man, Jesus is here to change the world. And you know how he changes the world? He changes it with one step at a time, with one individual at a time, with you and I being willing to take that step. And this is what the life in the kingdom of God is all about is that you and I will do things we can never do on our own. You will love people who seem unlovable. You will have peace when it seems impossible. And then you will be that living testimony that points other people to Jesus. And the people who know you the best will then know that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Listen, when we're sinking, and when we're in our own sin and our own foolishness is maybe closing around us, uh, and, you know, we too can cry out, Lord, save me. And know that Jesus will. He, he, he came. He rescued. Know that he rescues you. He rescues me. He saves us not only from this world, but from the power of the evil one. He saves us from our own sin. Not just the sin that we've inherited from our parents, so to speak. Not just the sin that assails us and is around us in this world. But just even from our own, our own foolishness and our own wrongful decisions, sinful decisions. The sin we commit, the sin that gets us into trouble. The sin that puts us in danger, sin that, that would cost us our lives, our eternal lives, but for the rescue of Jesus. And that should be encouraging for us today. So Jesus comes to us, and he's not this God who's far away. You know, he, he doesn't demand that we somehow make our way to him. He was the one who came to Bethlehem. At Christmas time, we looked at that name, Emmanuel, God with us. The fact of the matter is he still is with us. He still comes daily to us, us created people on earth. That's who we are. But Jesus comforts us, he catches us, and he rescues us. Can I get an amen? I'll drink to that. That's even better. He stretches out his arms on the cross. He rescued us. He comes to us. He comforts us. He catches us. He rescues us. Jesus is not a lighthouse. He is more than a lighthouse. You know, a lighthouse is useful and good, but it cannot come to you. It cannot rescue you. When the Titanic is sinking, the people didn't need a lighthouse uh, so that they could row their way to shore. They needed a rescuer, one that would come to them, one that would comfort them, one that would catch them and pull them out of the circling waters. Remember today that Jesus is with us. That's fantastic that he is with you, that he has promised to be with you, that he will never leave you. And he wants us to believe in him. And he does not tell us how or the why or the when, but he tells us the who. In the words of the one who knows us, in the words of the one who loves us and is with us, he says, hey, it's me. It's me. 
Now, maybe you're here today and you're invited by somebody to come and you hear some guy like myself pontificate this morning. I'm always of the mind that Jesus is always reaching out to you. He's reaching out to all of us. I started off talking about the different stressors in our world. You know, whether you have stresses at work or at home and how it affects us and how if it's at work and it can affect our home life and it's at home, it can affect our work life. And the fact is, is that Jesus is always right in the middle, just trying to get our attention, saying, hey, 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 it's me. Just calm down. Come here. I want to use you. I want to use you to change the world. I want to use you to feed the world. It's okay. I'm here. Oh, and, and by the way, if you stumble, come here. Why are you doubting? It's okay. It's me. Let's pray. I'm always convinced that Jesus is always speaking to all of us as to whether or not we choose to listen. There's so much in my heart today, and Father, it's hard for me to pray here. I want to pray for those who feel stagnant and stuck, and I want to pray that you would kill off some pride in, in some of us so that we can actually move, so that we can actually get help to freely move towards an experience with you. And my prayer is that you would let people be read by your scripture, that, the, that your word would read them, and I, I want you to, uh, I want to pray for all the hurt that can exist when other things are worshipped besides you. God, forgive us when we forget that we are the ones who must make and must take this message to the world. God, sometimes we forget that we're your servants. So forgive us, God, for our selfishness and lighten our hearts and lessen our egos in this process. God, one of the most frightening part of being one of your children is to is that it's so easy to fake. It's easy for us to simply be plastic. And there are days when we don't feel like Christians. There are days when we hurt inside. There are days when our faith is weak and we hide our faces behind masks to show the world around us, you know, um, oh, we're, we're okay, but behind the plastic, we're weeping. God, my prayer is for our community that you would give us the courage to remove our masks. Give us the guts to show the world that we can hurt as well but that we believe in your son, Jesus. Because our masks won't lead others to him. And God, you did not send your son so that we would do the same old way. Jesus didn't come into our lives so that we'd be stuck in a rut. So help us see things with the eyes of a child. Help us to stop looking over our shoulders and look ahead for what is to come. Each morning is a new day. Your mercies are new every day and a new chance for us to see all the opportunities that we give you. And we spend a lot of time worrying about how we mess up and we're afraid that you won't love us anymore and we try to hide from you. But like a loving parent, you wrap your arms around us and you say, it's me. And you forgive us and you send us on our way yet with another chance. And God, this, this path of life is long and short all at the same time, and yet we need you to light the way so that we don't stray from your direction. 
And so my prayer for us this morning is to move forward and to be authentic, to be real believers that will not only reach out to others and feed others, but also draw people to you. And I pray, Father, that you would stir up our hearts for you, that you would stir up a comfort for what you want to do in this place and what you want to continue to do in our lives. And we thank you for the grace shown us and afforded us. And I continue to ask that you would be merciful and powerful among us. For it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Stand with me. If you're moved, if you want to talk, if you want to explore more about Jesus, there's a welcome card. Take that, fill it out, drop it off at the welcome desk on your way out. We'll contact you. We'll, we'll answer your questions. We'll walk with you. would love to be able just to connect with you on a very personal level. Starting tomorrow is the beginning of Passion Week. We have one-hour gatherings up in the Student Center, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, a little bit of worship, a little bit of prayer, a little bit of teaching. It's to help us focus as we walk. It's Palm Sunday today as we walk into um, Easter. Bad Friday, uh, we do a tannenbrae. If you know what a tannenbrae is, it's called the service of the shadows. Come, be a part of that again, one hour on Friday. And then Easter Sunday, the highlight of the Christian calendar. Way bigger than Christmas, people. So bring your Easter bunnies and your chocolate eggs, but bring your friends. And let's bring people to hear the story of what Easter is all about, shall we? In ancient time, the one who blessed and extended their hands for the blessing. One receiving the blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing before you go, put your hands in the air and here it is. Soul Sanctuary, you and I are called to be partners with God by having compassion on others and putting that compassion into loving action. So, may you feed them, may you love them, and may you take care of them. And in doing so, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. May you allow him to mold you into what he wants you to be. And may you joyfully fill the role he has given to you. And may his peace fill your soul. Be blessed. And we'll see you next Sunday.